Open your Bibles with me to Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. It says this. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. It's the end of the book. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he was intimate with her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and took care of him. The neighbor woman said, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, who fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon, who fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, who fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse, who fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. So, I want you to take a time, take a moment, and step back in your life. Think back to when you were a kid. Remember how life seemed really good, and how the world seemed to just work around you in a way that was beneficial for yourself. There wasn't anything wrong that could possibly happen to you even though it might happen to other people. And then several years go by, and you grow older, and your eyes start to open up to see a bit more of the harms in the world. And then you get jabbed a little bit. Maybe you get bullied at school. Maybe you experience gossip. Maybe you start to experience more hardships in your household. Maybe your parents went through a divorce, and you experienced that. Maybe a loved one passed away. And it doesn't take long before we sober up to what life is really like. That life here isn't a time full of sunshine and roses in which we just travel around frolicking in the meadows. It's a time filled with suffering and pain. And during those times, how often do we go to God to trust Him when the going gets rough? So, this book of Ruth follows the story of a woman named Naomi as she goes through her trials in her life. So, here's the main idea regarding this passage. Trusting God who provides and redeems you from brokenness. Trusting God who provides and redeems you from brokenness. And there's two reasons why you should do this. Number one, trusting God because He provides your needs. And number two, trusting God because He fulfills His promises. So, number one, trusting God because He provides your needs. Now, I'm going to do a brief recap over the story of Ruth, so feel free to follow me through the story as I go along, but I won't be reading from the passage directly. So, it's the time of Judges. This is after Moses leads the Israelites from Egypt through the wilderness into the Promised Land. And this is the in-between period between when Joshua leads the Israelites into the land of Israel and when David is raised up to be king. Now, during the time of Judges... As recorded in the book of Judges, it says that 
absolute chaos happens in the land of Israel. The Israelites continually turn away from the Lord, and God has to consistently raise up judges to lead the people back to Yahweh. So it's the time of judges, and Naomi, her husband Elimelech, and their two sons move to Moab, the land of Moab. And once they move into the land of Moab, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Now, over the course of the next ten years, Naomi's sons decide to marry Moabite women. And then during their time there, they die as well. So Naomi, heartbroken, decides to move back to Israel. And she tells her two daughters-in-laws, now widows, to go back to their homeland, since she can't provide for them. One of them listens to her and obeys her and goes back to her homeland, but the other one, named Ruth, insists on staying with Naomi. So Naomi and Ruth move back to Israel, back to Naomi's hometown, and the town is buzzing because Naomi is back. So people are talking amongst each other that this woman who left with her husband ten years ago is now moving back into town. And Naomi, hearing people call her name again and again, answers them and tells them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has afflicted me. So it's a time of harvest, and Ruth decides to go out to the fields to glean from the fields, so that she can feed herself and her mother-in-law. And during her time, she decides to go to a field, which happens to belong to a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz sees Ruth picking from the field, and hears of her faithfulness, and then pulls her aside, letting her pick from the best of the crop, and also telling her to not go to any other field but his. So they live off of the generosity of Boaz for the entire time of the harvest, and then at the end of the harvest, Naomi pulls Ruth aside and tells her to dress up and go to the threshing floor. Now there's kids here, so I'm going to be nice. The threshing floor is not a place like the Cinderella Ball. The threshing floor would be the equivalent of two southern kids running off into the cornfields at night. Do I have to go more in depth than that? Okay, read the Song of Solomon. Okay, so Boaz wakes up to Ruth lying next to him. And rather than freaking out because there's random ladies next to her, he's actually flattered. So he decides that he's going to do everything he can to bring Ruth into his family. So he goes to the guy who's first in line to be a family redeemer or to take care of Naomi and Ruth, and convinces him to pass on the responsibility to himself instead. And that brings us to today's text. So look at verse 13. Boaz takes Ruth, and she became his wife. When he was intimate with her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gives birth to a son. So they get married, they get intimate, and then God gives Ruth and Boaz a son. Look at verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. So what exactly is a family redeemer? See, it might be weird for us to think about in 21st century America, where women can provide for themselves. They can have jobs, they can go out and work, and they can provide for themselves and their own household. But at that time, women don't work. Their job is to look after their own home and care after their own kids. So, having no husband means that they have no income. And if they have no income, that means that they have no hope in being able to feed yourself or provide for yourself and your family. 
So the solution that they had at this time is this idea of the family redeemer. And what the family redeemer would do is he would take on the possessions of a close relative who recently deceased, including the women, and his job would be to provide and take care of that property, including the women in question. So remember back in the story that Naomi tells people to call her Mara or Bitter, which is typical for us to say when things don't go our way. She had a pretty nasty outcome in her life, right? She moves out into the land of Moab, and over the course of 10 years, her husband dies, so she's widowed, and then both of her sons die. And then she's stuck with two foreign women that she has to take care of. That's a pretty tragic state. And it's typical for us to say things like she does when things don't go our way. To call ourselves Mara or bitter. Because how poor and sad is my life that God would do something tragic to me. My life is so terrible. My situation is so bad. Because there's this cruel, omnipotent God who takes joy at making our lives miserable. Or maybe you're more kind to God. And you think, you know what, God, I'm going to give you a little bit more credit. See, my life is like a chicken in the oven. And you turned around cooking other things for dinner, and you didn't notice that my chicken was burning, which was my life. So God obviously did not pay attention to me, which is why my life is in turmoil. Well, we can see in this passage that that actually isn't the case. Look at verse 15. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is bared to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So was it really all dire for Naomi? No. Why? Because she had Ruth. And how does verse 15 describe Ruth to be? She's better than seven sons. Forget Naomi's two sons. Ruth is far better than they ever were. In fact, she is better than any multitude of sons that Naomi ever could have had. But does Naomi really have a thankful heart for having Ruth in the midst of tragedy? No. She ignores it. And that's what we tend to do when we're in trials. We tend to ignore the good in our lives. We let the tragedy cloud our vision and we start to become bitter like Naomi. Because how poor and pitiful am I, even though God is still being faithful and providing good gifts for us. So Naomi does have this gift in her hands despite her tragedy. But God goes even beyond that. God doesn't just give her Ruth. Look at verse 16. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and took care of him. Now, what does this mean? Placing a child on your lap in that day is a symbol of adoption. So this means that Naomi is taking this son as her heir that she didn't have because her two sons passed away. So God does not only give her Naomi, who's already far better than anything she could have ever wished for, God gives her a son. Now, God planned this way before it actually happened. So in the midst of tragedy and pain, God still has a plan. It wasn't like God heard Naomi's whining about her situation and went, Oh snap, I had no idea. Okay, here, I'll give you a son. That's not how it works. God knows every situation that we are in. And God had a plan to provide for Naomi. God doesn't change his mind because of our complaining. He's God. Christian, 
Don't let your circumstances determine your trust in God. If your trust is based on your circumstances and not based on who God is, that's idolatry. You're placing yourself in the place of God. You are not in the center of your own universe. That's not how the world works. It doesn't work to make you happy. The world exists to glorify God, which means that we can't rely on Him because of our circumstance, but because of who He is. See, if we look at God to see who He is, as an omnipotent, all-knowing, and loving being who's caring after us as His children, that means that even in the midst of terrible circumstances, we can still look to God and trust Him. Not because our circumstances are good, but because God is good. And because God is good, we can trust Him to provide for us. So, point number one, trust in God because He fulfills His promises. Now, if you're a non-Christian, you might say, that sounds great, but there's a little problem here. See, if God is a good God, and He's all-powerful, and He's able to do anything that He wants... And he's also all-knowing, which means that he's a genius and smarter than anything else in the world. Why is there suffering in this world? He's God. Couldn't he have conceived of an option that would not have included this pain? Fair question, and here's my answer. See, if God is all-knowing, that means that he knew every single way possible, and he still chose this one. Which means that if he is all-knowing, like the non-Christian might say, then that means that he has a better reason for why he did it than we, who are limited in our knowledge, could ever conceive. See, when you ask that question, what you're implying is that you can possibly come up with a way that would not have pain better than God could. Which means that suddenly God isn't God anymore, and you're smarter than Him. You can't have it both ways. Either God is smart... And, and all-knowing regarding the universe, and he's able to conceive of the best possible way for this universe to function, or he's not God. You can't have it both ways. All right, and with that, I'll move on to point number two. Trusting God because he fulfills your promises. <clears throat> Sorry. Trusting God because he fulfills your promises. Let's look at verse 17 of, through 22. So verse 17 says this. The neighbor woman said, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was a father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. I'm not going to read the rest, like you guys so desperately don't want me to do. And why is that? Because we hate genealogies, right? Let's be honest. We all hate genealogies. So why in the world did God put a genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth? How many of us started a Bible reading plan for the beginning of the year? How many of you got to Genesis chapter 10 when God lists the genealogy of Noah and gave up? (laughs) Or, Or maybe this is what I do when I reach a genealogy. I put my finger at the beginning of the genealogy and I just follow it all the way down until I reach the next part of the story. And then I continue reading as if I read the whole thing. So why in the world would God put a genealogy in the book of Ruth? Well, it's actually something significant. So let me explain genealogies for you so you can understand why the genealogy matters before we actually enter in. So think of genealogies like a train track. Okay, It's fast-forwarding through whatever area you're going through. And each name is like a train station 
So stopping to let you know that this name is a significant name that you should notice while they fast forward through time. So this genealogy is actually covering over the course of 800 years in a couple names. So it's a lot nicer than having a genealogy listing, listing every single name that you could ever have for those 800 years, right? So why are these names important? So I'm going to focus on two specific names here. So before that, let's look at verse 17. So the neighbor woman said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was a father of Jesse, the father of David. Nothing? Okay, let me explain why. His name is David. Everyone knows who David is. For a person who's reading the book of Ruth, this is a huge deal. Nobody expects David to show up in this story at all. This is a story about two widows that have no hope. It's coming from the lowest of the low, where they have to go to a field and pick off from the scraps left behind by the harvesters in order to feed themselves. And who's David? David is the king of Israel. He ushered in the golden age of Israelite kingdom. So what in the world does he have to do here? Why in the world is his name put in here? It's a huge plot twist for them. They don't see it coming at all. And the idea behind that is that God provides David from um, a lineage of terrible circumstances. David is a great-grandson of a widow. In fact, not even an Israelite, a Moabitess. It doesn't make sense. Now look at verse 18. The first name is who? Perez. Now look at verse 11 and 12. So go back in chapter 4 and look at verses 11 and 12. So the elders and all the people who were gathered at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephratah and famous in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Perez is the son of who? According to the text, look at verse 12. So like the house of Perez, the son who bore to who? Tamar bore to Judah. So he's talking about Judah. Perez is a link to Judah. Now again, that's another name that we're kind of familiar with, but we don't quite know who he is. So let me help you out. Go to Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. So this is Jacob in his last days blessing his sons. And this particular verse is where Jacob is blessing Judah. His favorite, well, not necessarily his favorite son, but the one who gets the best blessing. And he says this in verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. So what will never depart from Judah, according to Genesis 49.10? The scepter. Now, the scepter is a symbol of the king. So, in other words, what Jacob is saying is that Judah will be the king over his brothers. So, track with me here. There's two endpoints here. There's David, and then there's Judah. So, what is the author of Ruth trying to show? That David is from the lineage of 
of Judah, and that the promise that the scepter will never leave from the hand of Judah is being fulfilled in who David is. This is the only text in the whole Bible that connects David to Judah. And shows how God is able to use Naomi's dire circumstance to fulfill the promise that he made centuries before to Judah. And we're so arrogant to think that he can't provide for our lives. He had a plan for centuries. And he was able to fulfill it in this through this widow named Naomi. So, with that, let's take a little step back here. And go back to Ruth chapter 4 to ask you a question. Who is the man, so don't look down at your text, who is the man who becomes the family redeemer for Ruth and Naomi? Boaz. Yeah, Boaz. But look at verse 14 to 15, where the women say to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has not left you without family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life, sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So what is this text specifically talking about? Who are they talking about? Obed. But isn't Boaz supposed to be the family redeemer? Why does this text refer to Obed as a family redeemer? You see, in order to understand a story, you have to understand who Boaz is. Boaz is a close relative to Elimelech. Who's the what? Who's the husband to who? Naomi. Naomi. Which means that Elimelech is old. Which also means that Boaz is old. So Boaz could try to provide for Ruth and Naomi for the rest of his days, but eventually Boaz is going to die. And probably before Naomi and Ruth die. Which means, who will take care of them? Obed does. Right? According to verse 15. He will renew their lives and sustain them in their old age. So God doesn't just provide a family redeemer for them. He provides an even greater family redeemer by the name of Obed. Obed will do what Boaz was unable to do. See, Boaz will die and he will not be able to sustain them in their old age. Obed will come and be an even greater family redeemer for them. But God doesn't just stop there, right? We saw the connection between Judah and David, and we see how Obed is a grandfather to David. And David is an even greater redeemer than Obed is. Why? He doesn't just redeem a family. He redeems the whole nation of Israel. Right? Think about the time of the judges. Utter chaos. People are leaving from the Lord. People are killing each other. Other nations are coming in and invading consistently again and again. David comes into the picture, and then he restores order. He brings the people of God back to Yahweh, and he establishes the golden age of the nation of Israel. So this book isn't just talking about family. They're actually showing how God provides an even greater Redeemer. But does it end there? What happens once David dies? Well, after David dies, his son Solomon takes the throne. And after, his, after Solomon dies, his idiot son Rehoboam takes the throne. And because of his terrible diplomacy, the kingdom splits in two, and within the next 700 years, nations come in and capture Israel, and Israel goes into exile. So, did David really usher in that golden kingdom that this book is talking about? Did God mess up? 
Did God look at David messing it up with his lineage and go, oh man, I don't know what to do now. I brought David in. Shoot, what do I do? No, that's not what God does. God has a greater plan in the book of Ruth than just David. See, there's a greater redeemer than David, and his name is Jesus. Go to verse 14. May his name become well known in Israel. See, Jesus is a far greater name than Obed could possibly have. Go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Keep your finger in the book of Ruth and go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You want to talk about a great name? Jesus is a name that is above every name. That literally at the name of Jesus, every single person who has ever lived will bow at the name of Jesus. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Look at verse 15. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Go to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It says this. He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So God doesn't just renew and sustain you in your old life. He takes your broken soul and He regenerates it by the work of His Holy Spirit. So not only will you be sustained in your old life, but after you die, you can have eternal life with Him. That's a lot greater than living slightly old, longer when you're older. Jesus goes far beyond what this Redeemer Obed could possibly do. He is the greatest Redeemer that God could have ever provided to this world. And this is the Gospel. God creates the world to be good. And then tragedy hits the moment that we sin. And the world becomes fractured and we're separated from Him. And we're broken without hope like Naomi. And then Jesus comes into the picture. He is the family redeemer. He dies on the cross, taking on the responsibility for our sins, and then rises on the third day, completely victorious over death. He redeems us from brokenness, and He restores our relationship with God. So if you're a non-Christian this, tonight, this is what God is telling you. You might feel like your life is broken. You, know, you might look around at your life and feel hopeless. And you may ask yourself why there's pain and suffering in your life. But the truth is the problem is deeper than your experience. The problem is sin. You could try to fix the problems in your life, but you'll just be addressing the symptoms and not the disease. You need to repent and believe in Jesus. And this is the promise of Jesus and Ruth, that He will renew and sustain you. And that He, not just in this life, but in eternal life. He will never abandon you. Christian, this is what God is telling you. Firstly, don't lose heart. 
If you feel like there's pain in this world and you don't know why there's so much pain and suffering in your life, don't lose heart. The day is drawing near. Our faith is not in this present world. Our faith is in the future when Jesus comes and we can have eternity with Him. Hold fast to Him. But don't do nothing either. Don't just sit here waiting for Jesus to come so that He can go ahead and fix everything. Jesus commissions us, right? In Matthew 28, He sends us out in order to gospelize the lost. So share this news with other people. The world has no hope. They're like Naomi. They view themselves as Mara, as bitter. We have to share with them the hope that our Redeemer has come. And also gospelize each other. Some of us may lose sight of the fact that Jesus is our Redeemer. We might become clouded in our tragedies. We need other Christian brothers and sisters to come in to speak truth into our lives. And to open our eyes so that we can see that our hope isn't in this life. And also, since we are family, we should be addressing each other's needs. That's why at this church we have a benevolence fund. So that people have needs that we can support them. And we should constantly keep our ears open and our uh, ears open and our eyes open to look to see the needs of other people at our church and work to address those needs. If Naomi was in our church this Sunday, would someone have come in to provide for her? Would someone have seen her in her affliction and shown her the love of Jesus? We need to be a church who cares for those who are in need. And lastly, verse 14, the women say to Naomi, praise the Lord. We should marvel at what God has done for us. He sent Jesus, the greatest gift of all. And that should lead us to praise and worship for all that he is. So praise and trust the God who provides Jesus and redeems us from the brokenness of sin. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that, that we are broken people and that you've shown us that we are broken people. And God, thank you for not just leaving us in this place of utter disparity, but giving us Jesus. Someone to come and redeem us from our state of brokenness. I ask God that we will be able to depend wholly on you. That we can look to you in the midst of our pain and suffering and know that our hope isn't in this life, but in the life to come. And will we be a church that is able to look and care after each other, encourage one another, and tell the world of the hope that we have because of the work of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.